Okay, hello everybody. Today is Tuesday, so it is time for some True Crime Talk Radio. But before we begin, I have just a couple of quick announcements. The first is a big thank you to everybody who checked out the episode that I did on the Mystic Drop YouTube channel. You guys are awesome, as well as everyone who left comments. And also, another big thank you to everybody who watched the first video in a debunking series that I'm going to be doing on the weekends. Some very short videos, but talking about some of the Zodiac Killer suspects, whom I believe are absolutely not the Zodiac Killer. The first one was Ross Sullivan, and that is now out on this channel, Black Box Online Radio. As always, you can like and subscribe. And if you would like to download the audio of this program for free, you can go over to Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio as a pure podcast, take it on the go, anywhere and anyhow. Launchpad 1 under the same name, Black Box Online Radio. But the easiest way to get it is just by going into the description box and clicking the link. And another great way to support the channel is to visit the Teespring page, which is also in the description box. Have a look at some of the merchandise, t-shirts, and even now those wonderful coffee mugs. But of course, there's also the Amazon page that has the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan. It is a murder mystery, fiction, it's a novel, but it is available all the same. And speaking of that, I will also get to some some announcements that are outside of my world, and the first is that Mark Hewitt is re-releasing his book on Charles Manson called Charles Manson Behind Bars. So please look out for that. And um, I was just looking on Facebook and I saw that Mark Hewitt is also putting out an audio version of his book, Hunted, about the Zodiac Killer, and it's going to be narrated by Mark Redfield, so another thing to be on the lookout for. Drew Beeson is also putting out some new content on a platform I had never heard of before. It's called Subscribestar. Um, he is going to be doing some new content, going to focus on forensic linguistics in the Zodiac Killer mystery, as well as perhaps some other things. I just caught the advertisement that he put out on his show, The Zodcast. If you're not listening to that one, I highly, highly recommend it. The Zodcast available on Drew Beeson's YouTube channel. But yes, um, please check out his page, Subscribestar. I have never heard of that one before. It seems like it's um one of those um kind of like additions, supplements to a YouTube channel and so on, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of good stuff. And lastly, Michael Morford is going to be planning a new podcast interview with someone who is a direct, first-hand connection to Donna Lass, someone from Donna Lass's inner circle who knew her personally. And Morph and I have been corresponding about this because I started doing a weekly episode on the disappearance of Donna Lass, and the next episode for that is going to come out on Thursday. But Michael Morford is in talks with someone who knew Donna Lass personally, and he's going to be doing a podcast interview with that person. Who is it? I have no idea. He hasn't shared that with me yet. But um, I do appreciate that Morf has been following my Donna Last series and, uh, you know, giving feedback, as well as on some of my other Zodiac Killer videos, and I'll be talking all about that on the AMA. And the last thing to say is that I am also the host of Astro Psych 400, a YouTube channel that focuses on, like, astrology, personality traits, and talking about the Zodiac Killer a lot got me very curious about star signs and, well, zodiac signs. So I did a 12-part video series on Astro Psych 400, the YouTube channel, just another invitation to check that one out. But let's get into some of the topics for today. Firstly, it is now the month of August, 
and recently we've passed several major anniversaries in the true crime world. I was talking about the disappearance of Brandon Lawson, which occurred on August 9th of 2013, as well as the Tate-LaBianca murders, which also occurred on August 8th and 9th, uh, the murders of Sharon Tate, J.C. Bring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frakowski, and Stephen Parent were on the first night, and on the second night, August 9th, were the murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, and I did some um, episodes that was talking about that recently. Because I was focusing in on those crimes, I had overlooked something that has become rather important to me, and that was August 12th. August 12th might not so sound like an impact date to many people, might not stand out to many people, but August 12th was the anniversary of the murder of Marie Iannuzzi from 1979. Marie Iannuzzi attended a wedding reception on August 11th, and she was murdered in the early a.m. hours of August 12th, 1979. And I did several episodes about her this year, as well as another murder that is connected to Marie Iannuzzi's case, and that is the murder of Joan Webster, which occurred on or about November 28th of 1981, roughly two years later. But yes, Marie Iannuzzi was last seen at the Cardinale's Nest Bar in Revere, Massachusetts. And what happened after that is somewhat of a mystery. The authorities believe that she was murdered by the serial killer Leonard Paradiso, and they still maintain that position to this day. But one person who heavily challenged that was Gareth Penn, and he wrote about this in his book, Time 17, talking about how implausible it was that the authorities are putting forward this narrative that Maria Iannuzzi was murdered because of a sexual assault when she was wearing a one-piece leotard that hadn't been cut off or anything like that, but they were still trying to say that someone had pulled it off and then put it back on her and drove her body to a dump site. I also think that the authorities either got something incredibly wrong or perhaps they fudged the facts in a certain way to get a conviction. And yes, Leonard Paradiso was convicted for the murder of Maria Iannuzzi, but someone else who heavily disputes that is Eve Carson, who is the author of the book Mommy's a Mole, which is about not only the murder of her sister-in-law, Joan Webster, as well as Maria Iannuzzi, but gets into a lot of uh, material about the CIA, so which we will be talking more about today. In a different case, it really is a very dark and twisted story, but before we um, truly get into today's episode, I would like to say a big rest in peace to Marie Iannuzzi. Now, the next case that I would like to discuss is the 1964 murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. I mentioned her recently, and I first learned about this murder because of a book that was sent to me by Playtime called Bond of Secrecy, which is mostly about stories of E. Howard Hunt and the CIA. I would highly recommend anybody read it if they would want a very fast, casual read. It's written by his son, St. John Hunt, but he was talking about how a woman named Mary Pinchot Meyer was married to a high-ranking CIA official named Cord Meyer, and she was also a mistress of John F. Kennedy. There's a podcast about the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer called Murder on the Towpath, which is hosted by Soledad O'Brien, and there's a free episode of that available online through Luminary. And I listened to that free episode last night, and since then, my newsfeed has just been blowing up with advertisements from this Luminary podcast network. Like, every time I'm, I'm on Facebook, they are advertising their stuff, so that will happen if you listen to any of their free content. Just a forewarning, but... Overall, I would say that I thought it was somewhat of a well-produced podcast, Murder on the Towpath, 
My problem with it is, they're focusing so much on race relations, and they want to talk about this as a black versus white issue, and I'm not really captivated by that. I would so much rather hear about the forensics and how the investigation was being conducted. Who are the suspects? What was the motivation to murder Mary Pinchot Meyer? Mary was out walking on the towpath by the CNO Canal in Washington, D.C., and somebody attacked her. The way they reconstructed this on Murder on the Towpath is they believe that she's walking by herself, and a man came up from behind her, grabbed both her arms, and held them behind her back. And then Marie was actually a very, very fit woman, and Mary was able to get away. And she, because she's a jogger, she's a runner, she was very flexible and agile. She's able to get away for a, for a second, and the assailant pulled out a gun and shot her once in the head. And then still, she is trying to move as much as she can, even with the headshot. Then the assailant stood over her and fired a bullet into her backside, and the bullet actually went through the aorta, which I believe is the largest artery in the body. And then, of course, Mary didn't survive. And then who did it? Well, we aren't completely sure. If you ever do listen to this uh, show, Murder on the Towpath, one thing that I thought was very confusing is they bring up at least one witness who could have seen or heard the events. In one part of the podcast, they say that he had a very clear view of these events taking place, and the name of the witness is Henry Wiggins Jr. They're saying he has a clear view of what's happening, but then it, later on they went on to say that he had only heard these events, and he heard the gunshots, but he didn't see them. So there's this guy, Henry Wiggins Jr. He is nearby, and then he walks over to where these gunshots have taken place, and he peers like peeks over a stone wall, and he sees Mary Pinchot Meyer on the ground, and an African-American male is standing over, kind of hovering over the body. He's wearing a beige coat and a dark-colored hat and um, dark shirts and pants, but he has that beige coat that's very distinctive. They lock eyes, and then the African-American male takes off. His name is Ray Crump, Raymond Crump. And then later on, he is um, confronted by the authorities. They find him, and he's not wearing that beige jacket. His cap and beige jacket are found in the Potomac River, in the water, I should say, in the water. But um, this turned into a giant mystery because they're like, all right, it seems like they have the guy. He's placed at the scene of the crime. He obviously took off and threw his clothes in the water, his... um beige jacket and his cap because he's trying to change his appearance. That is not unheard of in the true crime world. And in fact, it's a very common tactic among criminals. When they're trying to flee the scene, they're removing layers of clothing so they can discard them, and then the witness description is going to be totally different. And even when this guy, Ray Crump, was asked for his identification, he pulled out his wallet and water started dripping out. Now, his excuse was that he was fishing, and he dropped his fishing pole in the water, so he went in to try and retrieve it, and that's why his clothes were all wet. However, he didn't have a fishing pole with him, and later on they searched his home, like in his residence, and they found a fishing pole there. So they're like, is he just completely lying? Now, as I said, the podcast, Murder on the Towpath, really wants to zone in on the race relations aspect of this, and of course they're going to try and say that this guy Ray Crump was targeted, solely because he was black and he was in the area. But, I mean, it does beg the question, well, what on earth was he doing? Was he just somebody who heard the gunshots and he wanted to see if Mary Meyer was 
okay or not, or to find out if, like, she was still alive and call the police. Was he being a good Samaritan, or was he just being a curious individual, an innocent bystander who just walked over after he saw a woman on the ground? It really is still rather perplexing, and I should say that this is an unsolved case, and we do not have answers in this. But one point that was in favor of his defense is, all right, so allegedly the struggle took place between Mary Meyer, if the, if the crime happened the way that the authorities have reconstructed it, what were we saying? Those things about holding her arms behind her back and she's trying to, like, fight off the attacker, yet there was none of her forensic material on his body, like, I mean, no blood, if he had shot her at point-blank range, no blood spatter, also no fibers from her, from her clothing or anything, and it really was begging the question, now why would he do this, because Mary's out walking on the towpath, she did not have a purse with her, anything like robbery would be out, out of the question, because she didn't have any any valuables, like, and she would regularly jog on the towpath. She, sometimes she would even jog with Jackie Kennedy. She was a member of the upper echelon of society, but is that a reason why she was taken out? Because maybe she was a mistress of John F. Kennedy, and this is 1964, mind you, not 1963. It really is um, somewhat of a perplexing case, and there are actually numerous um, books, and now the podcast, Murder on the Towpath, have been created in um to try and unravel the mystery of the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. But I'd like to go over to an article from FFF.org. That's right, three Fs in a row. And it's actually written by Jacob Hornberger. And I couldn't believe that. I was like, Jacob Hornberger, the former presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party? But yes, he wrote an article about this, and I would like to jump into his uh, analysis of the subject. And he says, not only was there one eyewitness, Ray Crump, or... um. There's not only one eyewitness who uh, placed um, Ray Crump at the scene. I mean, of course, Ray Crump would be called as a witness if he were forced to try to to do the um, trial. But the first eyewitness was named Henry Wiggins Jr., right? So let's just read here. There were two eyewitnesses. One witness was Henry Wiggins Jr., and he said that he saw a black man standing over the body wearing a beige jacket, dark cap, dark pants, and dark shoes, and then identified Crump as the man he had seen. Now, it does appear like that witness sighting is credible, that um, that this guy, Henry Wiggins, heard the gunshot, so he sneaks on over, and he's like, well, where did that come from? What on earth is going on? And he sees somebody hovering over the body, and that was Ray Crump, because of the clothing. But there's another witness named William L. Mitchell. William Mitchell. And he said prior to the murder, he had been jogging on the trail when he saw a black man dressed in the same manner following Meyer for a short time before she was killed. When Crump was arrested, he was wearing dark pants and dark shoes. The police later found his beige jacket and dark cap in the water near the trail. It certainly did not look good for Ray Crump, as he himself said to the police. Nonetheless, he steadfastly denied having anything to do with the murder. And, um... I'm going to jump ahead here because I think that there are some more valuable points. And let's talk about some other motivations. Firstly, when the case came to trial, the prosecution, which was led by one of the Justice Department's top prosecutors, called 27 witnesses and introduced more than 50 exhibits. Dovey Roundtree, who was the attorney for Ray Crump, presented three character witnesses and then rested her case without calling Ray Crump to the stand. The jury 
returned a verdict of not guilty. And I think they would have to. I mean, you got to talk about reasonable doubt, as I said. There are these signs of a struggle going on, yet there is um, no physical evidence left behind. And also, one point was they never found the gun. If this guy is just accosted shortly after by the police and they've got him, they never found the gun in any nearby areas. They also drained the canal and they still did not find the gun. And of course, the defense attorney is going to be like, well, he um, didn't do it. The perpetrator committed this murder and took the gun with him. So, I mean, that is in favor of Ray Crump, but not everybody is convinced to this day. And um, I think that the most fascinating part of Jacob Hornberger's article is this part here. The eyewitness who claimed to be jogging on the trail when he saw a black man following Mary Meyer doesn't seem to be who he claimed to be. And this guy, William Mitchell, let's see what's going on with him. The man told the police his name was William L. Mitchell and that he was a U.S. Army second lieutenant who was stationed at the Pentagon. And this was related to an account according to the contemporaneous news clip in the Washington Star. By the time the trial began, Mitchell was no longer in the military and instead was now serving as a math instructor at Georgetown University. An investigation revealed, however, that Georgetown had no record of William L. Mitchell having taught there. His investigation also revealed that the CIA oftentimes used Georgetown as its cover for agents. Now, that last part, I can see where Jacob Hornberger is going with this, but that is um almost a little bit too speculative even for me. I mean, that sounds like, like a, starting with a hard-established fact, going through the records, all right, there's no William L. Mitchell who's a math instructor, but just to say the CIA uses Georgetown as a cover, I think you would need to provide a little bit more of a supporting point for that. But I think you can get where this is going, that Mary Pinchot Meyer was the wife of a high-ranking CIA official, Cord Meyer. She was also a mistress of John F. Kennedy. And one theory is even that she was murdered because they wanted to steal her diary and silence her because they thought that she might have have confidential or classified information that she shouldn't, and that was just the easiest way to go about it. Yeah, of course, they could steal the diary, but then she would still be capable of talking. They wanted to silence her for good. Another investigation regarding the personal address that Mitchell gave both the police and at trial turned out that the building serves as a CIA safe house. What was Mitchell, who was supposedly doing as a U.S. Army lieutenant and a Georgetown math instructor, doing at a CIA safe house? Now, it, they were unable to locate Mitchell after um, the after this writing came out. It appeared as though William L. Mitchell just disappeared off of the face of the earth, well, except for some circumstantial evidence that was uncovered indicating that Mitchell was actually a CIA agent. In the book that Jacob Hornberger is citing for all of this is called Mary's Mosaic, and it was written by Peter Janney. So it's important to note that Peter Janney is the one who's uncovered all these things, which he claims through his research that, um, this guy, William L. Mitchell, was living in the CIA safe house, that Georgetown is the front for CIA operations. Let's keep going. The second, especially disturbing part of Peter Janney's book relates to Mary Pinchot Meyer's diary. On either the night of Mary's murder or the following morning, the CIA counterintelligence chief, James Jesus Angleton, burglarized Meyer's home and art studio and stole her personal diary, 
which very likely contained detailed descriptions about her affair with President Kennedy. It also might have contained her suspicions that Kennedy had been the victim of a high-level assassination plot. Now, before you think, well, they're not going to care what she has to say. She's just the mistress, or she's just somebody else's wife. What the way that they describe Mary Pinchot Meyer in these articles is she was outspoken, she couldn't keep her mouth shut, like she would go to the formal dinners and just start talking and talking and talking, and they're like, she just wouldn't stop. So they were very worried that she would start telling somebody something that was um, compromising to certain people, or that would jeopardize other people's agenda. And Jacob Hornberger goes on to discuss another book that has been written about the case, as I said, there are... Uh, multiple, and it's by Nina Burley, and it was published in 1998 under the title A Very Private Woman. But unlike this Peter Janney book that is going to say, hey, the CIA is behind this, she's going to implicate Ray Crump in the murder, the African-American gentleman wearing the beige jacket that day. And the segment that's been written here is, in 1998, an author named Nina Burley wrote her own book about Meyer's murder and concluded that Ray Crump had actually committed the crime despite his acquittal. I mean, it, is, it does seem very damning for this thing about some guy is using the excuse of, hey, I was uh, fishing and I threw my fishing pole in the water, or I dropped my fishing pole in the water. And I can only, um, I can only understand that he must have been fishing from a bridge if he dropped a fishing pole in the water and was unable to retrieve it. And, and there's just no fishing pole present. I mean, yeah, somebody's by the canal, somebody's by the river, and their clothes are wet. That could have happened, and then they heard some gunshots. Hey, what's that? And they walk on over. But that does beg the question, where is the fishing pole? And we also do have to remember that witness, Henry Wiggins, did see him at the scene of the crime. He is, he's right there at the scene of the crime. But I do have a question for you guys, if you listen this far ahead. Does it sound odd that um if this accident reconstruction or uh, not really an accident this murderous reconstruction is true and that some guy just came up behind her grabbed her arms and held them back behind her is that similar to like what people would do in law enforcement like an officer trying to handcuff somebody and i don't think he was genuinely trying to handcuff her but trying to hold both arms behind her back is that a particular martial arts move or something? I mean, the first thing I thought of was like someone's putting a pair of handcuffs on them or they're just pull, holding both the arms behind the back, leaving the person in an incapacitated state. But, you know, she broke free. She was a runner. She was uh, very well fit and she was just going to try and make a break for it. But um, as I said, though, she was not carrying her purse and she didn't even have identification on her. One of the first things that tipped them off was, and this was mentioned on the podcast Murder on the Towpath, is that she was wearing gloves that had the name Meyer written on the inside. So, I mean, it definitely was not a robbery. It, she wasn't sexually assaulted. So that is also um, something that it, I'm not going to lie to you. That makes me very suspicious of the CIA that she's murdered in such a gratuitous way. Nothing is stolen to the best of our knowledge. And also, I mean, it this definitely wasn't a crime of someone trying to commit an opportunistic rape and it went wrong. I mean, there's no evidence to support that. If someone contemplated something, I mean, on on, on the canal towpath, which is a place that I've walked many times, mind you, in broad daylight, I, I just, um, I'm really not convinced of that. I'm not going to lie, the CIA does seem a little bit more guilty than Ray Crump, but 
I mean, he's there at the scene of the crime, and it does sound rather fishy about this, a guy, William L. Mitchell, but so much of that, this Peter Janney analysis, seems like hearsay. So, what do you think about the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer? Do you think she had a dark secret of the that the CIA didn't want revealed? Or do you think that um, maybe she was murdered because she was just outspoken and they thought that she was going to cause trouble for somebody down the line? What do you think? You could weigh in in the comments section. And one more time, the book that's been written about her is Mary's Mosaic. And there's also the one, A Very Private Woman. And the podcast is called Murder on the Towpath, all about the um, suspicious death of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Now moving on to our next story here on True Crime Talk Radio. Back in 2019, I did one episode on the death of Mahmoud Hussein Matan, sometimes pronounced Matan. And Mahmoud Hussein Matan was a guy who was wrongfully executed in Wales in the 1950s. And he was, um, the crime that he was wrongly executed for was the murder of a woman named Lily Volport. And I mentioned in that episode that a book was going to be coming out in the near future, and it is now currently out. It's called The Fortune Men by Nadifa Mohammed. And um, I'm going to go over here to an article from Crime Reads, and it's called A Murder in Tiger Bay. How Nadifa Mohammed's new novel revives a decades-old tragedy. Now, I know she titled her book The Fortune Men, but I have to tell you, A Murder in Tiger Bay is a much better title. Sadly, the book review gets the better title than the actual book. But yes, it says, in 1952, Mahmoud Matin was executed by the British government for a crime he didn't commit. Decades later, this novel reimagines his world in a working-class Docklands of Cardiff. And this is actually something that perhaps would be better for the AMA, but Jack Cooper, who runs the Zodiac Killer channel, asked me a question once saying, what is um, your favorite thing that you've ever narrated? And I don't know if um, this was an appropriate response, and I never have just one thing, but I was like, well, yeah, parts of Obsession into Darkness, the documentary series that is available on the Zodiac Killer channel. But the two episodes of Black Box Online Radio that I found that really surprised me for this one here, the the uh, one on the death of Mahmoud Hussein Matin, and it's uh, called just that, Who Was Mahmoud Hussein Matin, which came out in 2019. But there was another episode from that same year, 2019, called The Murder of Rusty Snyderman, and it was about um, also his widow, Andrea Snyderman, who became somewhat of a star on HLN and other uh, court-related programs. That was a setup that had been arranged by uh, her alleged ex-lover, Hemi Newman. She He murdered uh, Rusty Snyderman. It was an absolutely ridiculous um, crime that was committed. He rented a van from, like, you know, just a car rental company. It may have even been Enterprise, but it's been a while since I've uh, read up on that, so don't quote me on that exact detail. But he rents this van, and then he drives over to where Rusty Snyderman is, and he murders him. And then, like, later on, at some point, he returns the van, so then they're just like well, okay, this was the description of the car. You were the person who rented the car with that description. You're guilty. And he was indeed guilty. It was a horribly planned crime. But um, those were the two episodes that really stood out to me. Like, I listened back to them, and I was just like, wow, I big stories there. The murder of Rusty Snyderman, but also this one here, the one on the death of Mahmoud Hussein Matin, CrimeReach.com. In 1952, a 29-year-old Somalian was hanged at Her Majesty's Prison, Cardiff, in Wales, 
by Britain's best-known public executioner, Halbert Pierpont. After a long, drawn-out detention, a highly questionable police investigation, and a speedy trial at Glamorgan in Swansea, Mahmoud Matten was found guilty of murdering shopkeeper Lily Volpert in the notorious Tiger Bay area of the Welsh capital. Despite arguments from his lawyers, Matten ref was refused leave to appeal by the Home Secretary. I know this is off-topic, but a murder in Tiger Bay is such a better title. 46 years after Matten's execution and 34 years after the death penalty was finally due to increasing public outcries and distaste, the Court of Appeal, the highest court within the senior courts of England, quashed his conviction. Mahmoud Matten became the first person in British history to have a murder conviction officially overturned after being executed. And his family, like his uh, descendants, did receive somewhat of a settlement. I mean, they received a settlement of a considerable sum, not somewhat of a settlement. They received a settlement, excuse me. The British judiciary had killed an innocent man, a husband, and a father of three. In 1996, Matten's family was permitted, granted permission to have his body moved from the felon's grave in the prison, on the prison grounds to a cemetery in Cardiff. And, um... Yes, if anyone would like to hear more about that, the book is called The Fortune Men, which is by Nadifa Mohammed. So uh, that can be available anywhere books are sold. And the final thing that I would like to share with you is something that is a little bit more freeform. I've talked before about how I follow the channel Oak Leaves and Onions. It's a personal discussion show, and the host is uh, mostly anonymous. I don't even know her name. I don't think she gives it out. And as I said, it's not really like a life coaching channel. It's more just stories of personal experience. And I was listening to one, and she began comparing her life to the Nuremberg trials. She was telling a story about when she was a teenager, and she did something that a teacher had asked her to do. And it was a bad thing. And then in history class, they're learning about the Nuremberg trials that happened after... World War II, and she's like, oh my gosh, I feel the same way, because so many people at the Nuremberg trials were using that excuse that they did bad things during these during the World War II era, but they were only following orders, the same way that she did something bad, and she was just following the teacher's orders, and she's saying, no, that was a bad way to behave. That was a bad way to feel. No one should feel like that reading up on the people who were hanged at Nuremberg and like, oh my gosh, I'm the same as them. And you know what? I think she's right. Except for the fact that I view that as somewhat of a double-edged sword. And that's only one side. She only gave one side of the sword, one side of the dagger. The other side is, I find that when I'm thinking something about myself, and then I learn about other people, have also done the same thing, especially a bad thing. If I'm thinking something bad about myself and I find out that someone else has also done the bad thing, it can be comforting. Oh yes, sometimes you're like, I did something bad, and then you find out, yeah, that was a really bad thing to do. I shouldn't have done that. Other times, you think there's something wrong with you, and then you learn about someone else's experience, and you're like, I'm not so weird. I'm not so normal. The internet is very good for this, and it really is because of the internet, and it has to be because of the internet. Not your friends, not your family, not your school guidance counselor, not a psychologist. Someone who is outside of your geographic circle. That's why it has to be the internet, because 
It's that ability to expand and connect with people who are outside of the geographic circle, who are genuinely experiencing what you're experiencing. Like when you get certain types of mood swings, when you get certain types of, um, you know, spells of sadness, or even if you get angry about something and then you learn that half the population of planet Earth also gets angry when they think about the, this thing, or half the population of the planet Earth also feels sad when this type of experience happens. Or have you ever walked through, like, the garden section at Home Depot or Lowe's or maybe even Walmart, and you see a big bag of potting soil, and you just have to smack it? I was doing that yesterday, like, at Walmart. I'm like, I just felt like an absolute child. I just walked by, smack. And I've, I've seen a meme on Facebook that talked about that exact same thing. Anytime someone's walking past, you know, potting soil that's in one of those big plastic bags you just have to smack it maybe dog food too and all of these behaviors that you think are just you and then if everybody around you in your own geographic social circle is just like hey you're being weird and then you get online and you connect with people and you're like wait a second i'm not as weird as i thought i was it really is um it really is a uh, very it's it's good and bad. Sometimes you learn about your behaviors, like you did something growing up, and then you read about a serial killer who also had that same experience happen to them. It was like, wow, I should not have retaliated in that way. Oh, it almost sounds like I was on track to become a serial killer. Yeah, that's learning about other people's experiences, and you learn that you had bad experiences. But then other times, you're just going to be like, hey, I got angry about something. Well, other people get angry about these things. I'm normal. And like, like as I said, feeling sad about something. Okay, I'm normal. So it can be both good and bad in that way. And I think she only focused in on the bad part. But I do like the channel Oak Leaves and Onions. Um, Like I said, it's a um vlog, like, you know, talk to the camera kind of YouTube channel. I was hooked on it this weekend, watched many of her videos. And the absolute final thing that I would like to talk about on True Crime Talk Radio is something that isn't exactly true crime, it's more of an exploitation issue. And back in the early part of the new millennium, there was a very famous story going around about a gentleman named Mark Tatum. The legend has it that everything was fine with him one day, and then the next day his face got ravaged by a flesh-eating fungus that destroyed his eyes, his nose, and his upper jaw, and the doctors just went on to save his life by amputating all of that. And there he was left with a giant cavity in his face, more or less. By cavity, I mean like an opening. Like a concave opening that was where his face used to be. And he was featured on Ripley's Believe It or Not, as well as um, several other cha channels and shows. And I just caught his video on Only Human. Apparently I had watched it before a couple years ago, and I had, didn't even remember it then. But I saw him on Ripley's Believe It or Not as a kid, and they even gave us an article about him to read in the 8th grade. And sadly, it was called The Gross-Out Column. Like, we had this thing called The Gross-Out Column that told stories of medical experience. I, I don't know why they did that and gave that to 13-year-olds. But um, after I watched that um video that was about Mark Tatum and surviving this flesh-eating fungus that took his eyes, his nose, and his upper jaw... I just got online to start reading up about him the way that I do. Then I, I just get curious about things, and I want to read more and more. And I found that so many websites that were talking about him 
were companies that are like fungus removal companies or like the people who are mold experts who do like the sanitation work to get rid of mold from your basement and such like one of them over here is even called gta mold.canada and it says the case of mark tatum is not only rare but quite remarkable mark tatum wasn't only the victim of toxic mold which ultimately lost him his face Tatum was dubbed the man without a face. I absolutely hate it when they do that, by the way, when they call someone who has been a, the victim of a facial injury the man without a face, since he lost his eyes, nose, and upper jaw due to a fungal infection. Now, hear about some ways to prevent mold from growing in your home. Why choose us? Our job at GTA Mold is to put your safety and well-being before anything else. They're not alone. They aren't the only company that has done this. It really is weird that they're just using this type of um, tragedy to sell their mold sanitation services. So I I know this isn't probably what um, you guys were expecting to hear about on True Crime Talk Radio. I was just really surprised. But um, Mark Tatum was actually fitted with a very well-designed facial prosthesis, and that was the subject of the gross-out article that I even read back in 2000 and, um, oh, I don't know what year I was in the eighth grade, but back when I was 13, it was all about the facial prosthesis. And when he was featured on these TV shows, they weren't only trying to say that he lost his eyes and his nose and his upper jaw. They were saying that a facial prosthesis had been recreated for him that was somewhat lifelike. But over on boldhelp.org, this story of Mark Tatum, I mean, like, there are numerous websites about this that are just like, how to keep your basement clean, contact us for help. Uh, I just think that that is so weird and in poor taste that they would try and do that. But maybe I'm wrong if you guys have something to say in the comments section. But even though Mark uh, Tatum was given that very well-designed facial prosthesis in the early part of uh, the new millennium, he ended up passing away in 2005. And um, that's for the real reason why I started reading up on him, because I wanted to find out what exactly happened, if that uh, fungal infection that he um, it had experienced had been the cause of his death or not, and just to um, read up more on the subject, but mostly the family has kept his cause of death out of the media from the few websites that I have looked at, but um, I saw those were some very bizarre advertisements. I know they're probably thinking, all right, this happened, and um, we have this opportunity to definitely get clicks on our website. I clicked on their websites, you just even just seeing like what they were about and but they're using someone else's personal tragedy to sell basement sanitation. It's just weird, in my opinion. If you think that that's totally normal, weigh in in the comments section. You can respond to any of these uh, true crime cases, whether you want to uh, talk about some of the um, books that I was promoting in the beginning or the um, new thing that Drew Beeson and Mike Morford are going to be doing. You can weigh in in the comments section as well. Or if you like, have something to say about Mahmoud Hussein Matten, Mary Pinchot Meyer... Uh, the comments that I mentioned on oak leaves and onions, or even about the death of Mark Tatum from 2005. Share your ideas in the comments section below. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com, and you can also follow the show on Facebook, Black Box Online Radio. My personal Facebook is in the description box as well. And I will see you guys over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.